Chapter Seven of Our Village, Volume One by Mary Russell Mitford, read by Anne Fletcher, Hobart, two thousand and twenty. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Our Village, Volume One, Chapter Seven, Bramley Maying. Mr. Geoffrey Crayon has, in his delightful but somewhat fanciful writings, brought into general view many old sports and customs some of which indeed still linger about the remote counties familiar as local peculiarities to their inhabitants whilst the greater part lie buried in books of the elizabethan age known only to the curious in english literature one rural custom which would have enchanted him and which prevails in the north of hampshire he has not noticed and probably does not know did any of the readers ever hear of a maying Oh, let not any notions of chimney-sweeps soil the imagination of the gay Londoner. A country-maying is altogether a different affair from the street exhibitions which mix so much pity with our mirth and do the heart good, perhaps, but not by gladdening it. A country-maying is a meeting of the lads and lasses of two or three parishes who assemble in certain erections of green boughs called may-houses to dance and but I'm going to tell you all about it in due order, and must not forestall my description. Last year we went to Bramley Maying. There had been two or three such merry-makings before in that inaccessible neighbourhood, where the distance from large towns, the absence of great houses, and the consequent want of all decent roads, together with a country of peculiar wildness and beauty, combined to produce a sort of modern Arcadia. We had intended to assist at a maying in the forest of Pamba, thinking that the deep glades of that fine woodland scenery would be more congenial to the spirit of our English merriment, as it breathed more of Robin Hood and Maid Marian than a mere village green, to say nothing of its being of the two more accessible by four-footed and two-wheeled conveyances. But the Pamba day had been suffered to pass, and Bramley was the last maying of the season so to bramley we went as we had a considerable distance to go we set out about noon intending to return to dinner at six never was a day more congenial to a happy purpose it was a day made for country weddings and dances on the green a day of dazzling light of ardent sunshine falling on hedgerows and meadows fresh with spring showers you might almost see the grass grow and the leaves expand under the influence of that vivifying warmth, and we passed through the well-known and beautiful scenery of W. Park and the pretty village of M. with a feeling of new admiration, as if we had never before felt their charms. So gloriously did the trees in their young leaves, the grass springing beneath them, the patches of golden broom and deeper firs, the cottages covered with roses, the blooming orchard, and the light snowy sprays of the cherry trees tossing their fair blossoms across the deep blue sky, pour upon the eye the full magic of colour. On we passed gaily and happily as far as we knew our way, perhaps a little farther, for the place of our destination was new to both of us, when we had the luck, good or bad, to meet with a director in the person of the butcher of M., my companion is known to most people within a circuit of ten miles, so we had ready attention and most civil guidance from the man of beef and mutton, 
a prodigious person, almost as big as a prize ox, as rosy and jovial-looking as Falstaff himself, who was standing in the road with a slender, shrewd-looking boy, apt and ready enough to have passed for the page. He soon gave us the proper, customary, and unintelligible directions as to lanes and turnings, first to the right, then to the left, then round Farmer Jennings close, then across the Holy Brook, and then to the right again, till at last seeing us completely bewildered, he offered to send the boy, who was going our way for half a mile to carry out a shoulder of veal, to attend us to that distance as a guide. An offer gratefully accepted by all parties, especially the lad, whom we relieved of his burden and took up behind where he swung in an odd but apparently satisfactory posture between running and riding. While he continued with us we fell into no mistakes, but at last he and the shoulder of veal reached their place of destination, and after listening to a repetition, or perhaps a variation, of the turns right and left which were to conduct us to Bramley Green, we and our little guide parted. We went twisting and turning through a labyrinth of lanes, getting deeper and deeper every moment, till at last, after many doubtings, we became fairly convinced that we'd lost our way. Not a soul was in the fields, not a passenger in the road, not a cottage by the roadside. So on we went, I am afraid to say how far, for when people have lost their way they're not the most accurate measurers of distance, till we came suddenly on a small farmhouse, and saw at once that the road we had trodden led to that farm and thither only. The solitary farmhouse had one solitary inmate, a smiling middle-aged woman who came to us and offered her services with the most alert civility. All her boys and girls were gone to the maying, she said, and she remained to keep house. The maying? Oh, we are near Bramley then. Oh, only two miles the nearest way across the fields. Where are we going? She would seat the horse. We'd soon be there, only over that stile and across the field, then turn to the right and take the next turn in, oh, no, the next but one to the left. Right and left again for two miles over those deserted fields. Right and left. We shuddered at the words. Is there no carriage road? Where are we? At Silchester, close to the walls, only half a mile from the church. At Silchester? And in ten minutes we had said a thankful farewell to our kind informant, had retraced our steps a little, turned up another lane, and found ourselves at the foot of that commanding spot which antiquaries call the amphitheatre, close under the walls of the Roman city, and in full view of an old acquaintance, the schoolmaster of Silchester, who happened to be there in his full glory, playing the part of Cicerone to a party of ladies, and explaining far more than he knows, or than anyone knows, of streets and gates and sites of temples, which, by the by, the worthy pedagogue usually calls parish churches. I never was so glad to see him in my life, never thought he could have spoken with so much sense and eloquence as were comprised in the two words, straightforward, by which he answered our inquiry as to the road to Bramley. And forward we went, by a way beautiful beyond description, 
a road bounded on one side by every variety of meadow and cornfield and rich woodland, on the other by the rock-like walls of the old city, crowning an abrupt magnificent bank of turf, broken by fragments, crags as it were, detached from the ruin, and young trees, principally ash, with silver stems, standing out in picturesque relief from the green slope, and itself crowned with every sort of vegetation, from the rich festoons of briar and ivy which garlanded its side, to the venerable oaks and beeches which nodded on its summit. I never saw anything so fine in my life. To be sure, we nearly broke our necks. Even I, who have been overset astonishingly often without any harm happening, have acquired from frequency of escape the confidence of escaping, and the habit of not caring for that particular danger, which is, I suppose, what in a man and in battle would be called courage. Even I was glad enough to get out, and do all I could towards wriggling the gig around the rock-like stones, or sometimes helping to lift the wheel over the smaller impediments. We escaped that danger, and left the venerable walls behind us. But I'm losing my way here, too. I must loiter on the road no longer. Our other delays, of a broken bridge, a bog, another wrong turning, and a meeting with a loaded wagon in a lane too narrow to pass, all this must remain untold. At last we reached a large farmhouse at Bramley. Another mile remained to the green, but that was impassable. Nobody thinks of riding at Bramley. The late lady of the manor, when at rare and uncertain intervals she resided for a few weeks at her house of B.R., used, in visiting her only neighbour, to drive her coach and four through her farmer's ploughed fields. We must walk, but the appearance of gay crowds of rustics all passing along one path gave assurance that this time we should not lose our way. Oh, what a pretty path it was! along one sunny sloping field, up and down, dotted with trees like a park, then across a deep shady lane, with cows loitering and cropping grass from the banks, then up a long narrow meadow, in the very pride and vigour of its greenness, richly bordered by hedgerow timber, and terminating in the churchyard and a little country church. Bramley Church is well worth seeing, it contains that rare thing, a monument fine in itself and finer in its situation. We had heard of it, and in spite of the many delays we had experienced, could not resist the temptation of sending one of the loiterers, who seemed to stand in the churchyard as a sort of outguard to the maying, to the vicar's house for the key. Prepared as we had been to see something unusual, we were very much struck. The church is small, simple, decaying, almost ruinous, but as you turn from the entrance into the centre aisle and advance up to the altar, your eye falls on a lofty recess, branching out like a chapel on one side and seen through a gothic arch. It is almost paved with monumental brasses of the proud family of B, who have possessed the surrounding property from the time of the conqueror and in the centre of the large open space stands a large monument, surrounded by steps, on which reclines a figure of a dying man, with a beautiful woman leaning over him, full of a lovely look of anxiety and tenderness. 
The figures are very fine, but that which makes the grace and glory of this remarkable piece of sculpture is its being backed by an immense Gothic window, nearly the whole size of the recess, entirely composed of old stained glass. I do not know the story which the artist in the series of pictures intended to represent, but there they are, the gorgeous, glorious colours, reds and purples and greens, glowing like an anemone bed in the sunshine, or like one of the windows made of amethysts and rubies in the Arabian tales, and throwing out the monumental figures with an effect almost magical. The parish clerk was at the maying, and we had only an unlettered rustic to conduct us, so that I do not even know the name of the sculptor. He must have a strange mingled feeling, if ever he saw his work in its present home. Delight that it looks so well, and regret that there's no one to look at it. That monument alone was worth losing our way for. But cross two fields more, and up a quiet lane, and we are at the maying, announced afar off by the merry sound of music and the merrier clatter of childish voices. Here we are at the green, a little turfy spot where three roads meet, close shut in by hedgerows with a pretty white cottage and its long slip of a garden at one angle. I had no expectation of scenery so compact, so like a glade in a forest. It is quite a cabinet picture, with green trees for the frame. In the midst grows a superb horse chestnut, in the full glory of its flowery pyramids, and from the trunk of the chestnut the May houses commence. They are covered alleys, built of green boughs, decorated with garlands and great bunches of flowers, the gayest that blow. Lilacs, gelder roses, peonies, tulips and stocks, hanging down like chandeliers among the dancers. For of dancers, gay, dark-eyed young girls in straw bonnets and white gowns, and their lovers in their Sunday attire, the May houses were full. The girls had mostly the look of extreme youth, and danced well and quietly like ladies, too much so. I should have been glad to see less elegance and more enjoyment. And their partners, though not altogether so graceful, were as decorous and as indifferent as real gentlemen. It was quite like a ballroom, as pretty and almost as dull. Outside was the fun. It is the outside, the upper gallery of the world, that has that good thing. There were children laughing, eating, trying to cheat, and being cheated, round an ancient and practised vendor of oranges and gingerbread, and on the other side of the tree lay a merry group of old men, in coats almost as old as themselves, and young ones in no coats at all, excluded from the dance by the disgrace of a smock-frock. Who would have thought of etiquette finding its way into the May houses? That group would have suited Tenius. It smoked and drank a little, but it laughed a great deal more. There were a few decent matronly-looking women, too, sitting in a cluster, and young mothers strolling about with infants in their arms, and ragged boys peeping through the boughs at the dancers, and the bright sun shining gloriously on all this innocent happiness. Oh, what a pretty sight it was! Worth losing our way for, worth losing our dinner, both which events happened, 
whilst a party of friends who were to have joined us were far more unlucky, for they not only lost their way and their dinner, but rambled all day about the country, and never reached Bramley Maying. End of chapter 7